Hello and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk with Sophie Yasmin. My podcast is all about speaking to people that I find inspiring and sharing their story. So today I'm very, very pleased to have one of my dear friends with me, Kat Newland, musician extraordinaire all the way from Los Angeles. Hiya, how's it going Sophie? How do you want me to introduce you? Like, what are you? What am I? (laughs) Oh my god, my like pretentious AF title would be like Grammy-nominated cellist and soundscape maker. Okay. But you can just say musician. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. So maybe we could just start with uh, you introducing yourself, saying a bit about what you do and um, as a musician, as as a cellist. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, obviously with the COVID-19 landscape, what that looks like is a little different than what it was before. Sure. Um, So as you said, I'm a cellist in Los Angeles, um, but I'm UK trained, Hala Royal Academy. There you go. Got to have it in there. (laughs) Yeah, there's the plug. Um, Before the world shut down, I was gigging regularly. I'd just come off a little tiny tour uh, with Justin Bieber, which was fun. And I teach a lot, which is, I find really rewarding. I mean, my goal is to be, you know, in a position where I could teach for free. That would be the best. But Teach for free? Wouldn't that be something? Could you imagine? I would love to teach for free. Like if I didn't have to need it for an income, I would 100% teach for free. See, I love that because that's the essence of the giving, the knowledge, right? Yeah. Like, why why should it cost? I love that. Exactly. It's, I mean, we're so fortunate to be able to express our lives through these incredible instruments, you know, and being in a position to share that and just like share music and different ways to experience emotions and thought processes. Like, what an amazing thing to be able to share for free. I would love that. Well, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, there's a whole, like, field of study around, basically, I mean, ethnomusicology. It's humans are innately musical creatures. Mm. So I really, truly do believe it is the one absolute universal language. And so being able to share that, I feel like, is our responsibility as musicians. Definitely. So, like, absolutely. Hell yeah, I'd want to teach for free. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I'm I'm now going to aspire to that that level of, <laughs> that level of thinking and being. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. Thank you. Well, okay. So your description of yourself and, and what you do as a musician and as a as a creative person in in mm. this field of music is, I think, you know, typical of a freelance musician. Yeah, you, would you agree? Oh, with yeah, that? I would completely agree. Um, it is a lot of, I mean, sometimes I think I have a tendency to feel a little more like a machine than an artist, as they say. Um, but that, again, I think cracks down to just the training and the type of gigs that you get in Los Angeles anyways. It's very session oriented. You rock up, you play your thing, and then you leave. So everyone's just expecting you to be on all the time, which is cool. And it's exciting. And it's um it's rigorous. It's a very uh, tumultuous environment to play in, I think. Yeah. You mean like that sort of red light kind of recording? Yeah. 
yeah, red light anxiety. It's like a real condition. It's a real thing. Um, at least for me anyways, it's been the biggest obstacle in Los Angeles is overcoming the red light terror. Like, <gasps> oh God. Okay, no, yeah. we're fine. Because you that's know? it. Like, you know, red lights on, perfection has to happen now. It's it's a it's yeah. a real thing. That's why musicians, I think, can um, you know, we we've got the skills to be able to put our skills as people into many genres of life, you know, just because we we oh, weren't yeah. under pressure so much. And not just under pressure, like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn all this information, like a doctor, for example. I'm gonna learn all this information and then like put it to practice. Mm behind the scenes or even like an artist like a painter like you you, sure. you've got your skill right but it's not like right there in the moment like for musicians and any kind of performing arts um we have to really perform on the spot like right then and there uh, that's a special skill you have to be on all the time all which the time. is cool but it's just interesting I think how people get more anxious going into a booth than playing live concerts because like when you're in a booth you can take it as many times as you need to that's true. And you know? for that reason, I feel the opposite. I'm much more nervous in a performance, live performance situation than I am oh in like a recording. <laughs> Just because like, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I still suffer from performance anxiety for sure. And sure. it comes in waves. Like it went for years and then it sort of comes back again. It's just this constant mental game that we play, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um I think you get into the habit of performance and then you get into that like, okay, this is fine. This is routine. I can do this. It's a practice. It's yeah. a practice. Yeah. And you can get out of practice of performing. Um, I'm expecting that for myself, especially after COVID, like getting back on stage is going to be terrifying because I haven't had to perform since March. <laughs> it's like, I know. I know. Oh definitely. At the same time, if we can let our gratitude for uh, actually performing, getting to perform in real life, the joy, if we can let mm -hmm. that overcome the fear of like, oh my goodness, I haven't done this in, in, in months and months, you know, all, yeah. all year, then hopefully we're in a good place. So let's talk about your journey as a musician. So okay kind of from when it first started yeah tell me a bit about your your, your journey as, as uh, of becoming a cellist it's not a very like romantic story where I went to school everybody had to take orchestra in fourth grade um and I actually originally wanted to play the viola Ooh. which is also something you'll probably never hear anybody say yes it's a controversial <laughs> I really <laughs> wanted to be a violist um and because my last name Newland is middle to the end of the alphabet for most class rosters um everyone before me had picked violin viola violin violin viola viola did it all the tiny ones and she got to me and nobody had picked cello yet wow so I was like well I guess that one and that is how I guess the cello and I found each other okay so okay you you, you started learning the cello and how did you get to the point of deciding that's what you wanted to do for sort of, I presume, for the rest of your life? So that didn't actually come until much, much, much later. Um, the first time I thought of cello as a viable career option was when I was in my last two years of undergrad. Because um, originally I was in school for film studies because I wanted to be a filmmaker slash right. photographer slash screenwriter, all of you know, typical 
And then my junior year of undergrad, they brought in a new cello teacher and he was the first one who took me seriously as a player, but also drew my attention to the fact that this was something that is actually possible. Mm. Um, and he encouraged me to apply for graduate school. His name's Andrew Cook. He's incredible. He's a LA-based cello player. So yeah, that was to answer your question that I guess I was like 21. Um, that's when I first thought, oh, okay, maybe. So then I did the audition circuit and ended up getting into academy. So then I moved to London and did my master's in cello. And that's kind of where it all went. Yeah, I think once you do a, a degree like that, uh, an mm-hmm. institution like that, you know, um, really, really the Royal Academy of Music, one of the best in the world for classical music training. So that's you definitely choosing a certain path. So you've, you you studied, you did a, a master's at the Royal Academy, Royal yeah. Academy of Music. And mm-hmm. then after that, going back to LA, how did that training shape your sort of the beginnings of your career as a cellist in LA? Oh, um, that's kind of a tough question only because the training you receive at Academy is definitely more geared towards orchestral playing. Mm. Um, there's not a huge emphasis on sight reading and session playing or studio work. Mm. So a lot of my experience and growth in LA was truly on the job learning. What about improvising as a musician that I know as being someone that studied at a conservatoire in London, you know, <laughs> it's not it's not in the main, but where oh, I no. studied, <laughs> yeah, at the Guildhall, like they did for my postgrad, it was my favorite, my favorite two years actually were the ones that I got to do improvisation because I chose to do it. Is that a skill that you that you've cultivated and you like doing improvising? Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing, actually. I feel like improvisation is a really tricky thing for classically trained players, just because in classical training, there is such a huge emphasis on perfection and on really nailing musical character and making sure your technical passages are all flawless. And to improv, you need to have that freedom of experiment, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's not a thing anywhere in classical training because you know, you're playing either how the composer would do it if you're a purist or you're playing, you know, if you have to approach your shift in a specific way and if you don't do it like that, then it's wrong and you'll get docked, you know, 10 points on your recital. Oh, sure. You it's know? really the um, permission to fail that is missing. Yeah, from classical exactly. Music. There's a liberation of playing that's lacking. And it's like, you're never actually set free to just play on your instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like being given the primary colors to paint with. And it's like, you have to use these. And <laughs> I feel like that's classical training is you have to use these very specific tools in this very specific way, and then you'll be great. But then music is bigger than that. And, yeah, yeah. And we have to be able to explore the full palette. So with your journey as a cellist, so we've talked about like how you got started. We've talked about like the classical training and finding out that, hang on, I really, you know, the cello or being a musician, this is something I I, I want to do, being in LA, et cetera. Every every person in their life has like some sort of story of like experiencing a setback or, you know, difficulties. So I just wonder, you know, what kind of 
setbacks you may have experienced and and how you've overcome them because that's what this podcast is about you know I, I, it, it's it's really well yeah it's about um you know just to find ways to improve find ways to grow and mm. and I think hearing other people's stories of growth is always really inspiring um so yeah Aww. if there are any any stories you can share I'd love to hear them well I think the thing with setbacks is they can present themselves in a multitude of ways from physical injury to law, for instance, like, oh, all of a sudden you lose your visa and you can't participate in your industry anymore. Um, All the way to like mental and emotional and like spiritual hindrances. Um, Those are good ones. I I like the sound of those. What kind yeah. of what? How what? What do you mean? What would be a, a spiritual hindrance as a musician? I think, again, kind of tying it back into the classical training conversation. There's a lot of no in that training. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think when you are learning how to express yourself through an instrument constantly being told no you're wrong that's bad you suck these kinds of things um I think affect you on a much deeper level than just being mad at your fingers you Mm, know for sure and so I think that would be kind of like the spiritual slash emotional setback is yeah because it's like you know constant onslaught our essence of a person it's it's a very yeah. interesting thing actually and I, I i i wonder why that is but it's so personal it's naive to think that everybody will always love what you do yes yeah yeah you know and i think that's an important lesson to learn and it's an important lesson to not take personally like if someone's like i didn't like your song or i didn't like your interpretation cool whatever but that doesn't mean that you've done something wrong or that your personal experience with your craft is incorrect. Um, okay. So how do you personally uh, protect from that? Or at least, you know, what kind of things would you advise that would help with disconnecting, as you put it, or detaching? Because it's so hard and it's very current it's for so all of us. Hard. Yeah. It's so hard. Um, my kind of fail-safe method, it seems, is to get off of social media um mm-hmm. it's it's a weird relationship because I feel like the way culture's developed these days um you need social media as a player to find any semblance of legitimacy in the industry but it's a double-edged sword because you need the media so that somebody can be like oh they're legitimate and this is great but it's also the easiest way that someone can cut you down um, or that you can play the comparison game of like, well, they're doing these super dope gigs and I'm just sat here like with my thumb up my ass and I don't know what's going on. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, but then you like work yourself down these psycho holes of like despair and depression because somebody's posted a picture somewhere of them doing something. And then you're either like hella FOMO or you're like, this means I'm not valid because I only have 500 Instagram followers and they have 6 million. And it's just, sure. It's an unhealthy habit we've developed as a culture 
I think. Yeah, um, yeah, regardless of, of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of assigning validity to certain people. Um, so when I say get off social media, it's participate in a way that's healthy for you, but otherwise silence the noise. So like for me, I've muted everybody so that I can't see updates. I don't see stories. If I want to check in on somebody, I have to actually take the initiative to go and look at their stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, it's really funny that you mentioned this because um, it's something I've been uh, thinking about in the last few weeks, uh, definitely. And it's also something I've been talking about in my last couple of podcast episodes. Um, I phrased it as uh, clearing the distractions, like just clearing. And then the reason for doing that is to actually then hear my own voice because where is my voice it's it's if it's exactly. totally like saturated with everyone else's stuff mm-hmm. so I've yeah I definitely hear what you're saying and uh, that's a really interesting thing actually about muting everyone the benefit of muting is you won't all of a sudden lose all of your followers because you unfollow all of them yeah I don't really look at the numbers as such I I, I personally don't really I'm someone I guess who I'm a bit of a you know I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if I didn't sort of admit that I'm on social media a lot but then yeah. I've been talking about like oh I need to clear my distractions and <laughs> I, I mentioned in my last two episodes or one of them I'm addicted hi I'm so social media and I'm addicted well yeah of course everyone's addicted aren't they um, and we're talking about setbacks that was a huge pivot for my brain was allowing myself to celebrate other people and to be genuine about that celebration. And I don't know what it is about that lesson, but it feels so elusive and like so hard because I talked to some of my other friends about social media and it's just, it's so easy for people to fall down that well of self-comparison. And it's just kind of this cycle of, oh my God, I'm not good enough. How are they doing these things? I'm not good enough. How do I get there? How do I do this? I need to lose the weight. I need to tone up, da, 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 da. Instead of just being like, dude, you look great. All power to you. Hell yeah. Rock that bod. Oh, sick. Congratulations on your (laughs) XYZ award. You know, it's, And I don't understand why there is such a hesitation, at least in the entertainment industry right now, to genuinely celebrate other people. But I feel like once that shift happens, especially in culture and especially in social media, I feel like generally things would improve. It's it's a huge topic that like, you know, I personally cannot, I don't have, I don't have any answers but I have lots of questions. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, personally for me, I, I, I have realized, you know, that I, I've only just started calling it an addiction because it is. Mm. But at the same time, I, I, I think that I use social media in a very positive way. I, I actively Good. try to. Um, I, lo- I love it because I like sharing. Um, sure. And it's like a platform for me to share. Mm. Um, and yeah, so in that way, it's great. But in terms of like passively and subconsciously ingesting stuff that I don't want, that's what I find a challenge. Um, so that's, that's the balance for me is like, how can I, but I think actually I've learned something here with your muting, uh, which (laughs) is how can I, thank you so much. I'm like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Just like get rid of everyone and I can just share. 
yeah. <laughs> then that's you it, can, right? Exactly. It's all about selective participation. Um, and I think that's especially important for people who do have self-deprecating tendencies, you know, and I, at least I know personally for myself, that's one of the reasons why I had to get a handle on how I was choosing to participate with social media was because it was hugely detrimental to me and my own growth and my own development. So you said it's been pivotal for your brain. Um, yeah. And, and, and so in my you, spirit. In your spirit. So this is my little spirit. Has it made a difference, basically? Instead of giving all of your energy to other people and their journey, when you take the noise out, you can bring that all back into yourself so that you can really, why does this bother me? Why am I reacting this way to these things? Is there a previous trauma? Is there something from last year, 10 years ago when I was born? You know, did something happen? Hmm. And it's just, it allows you the space to clinically self-reflect. And I say clinically because you need to be incredibly clinical when you're asking yourself those questions. And sometimes the answers aren't very pleasant, you know? Sure. And that's why you just need to take it with like a little sterile scalpel and be like, (laughs) okay, yeah, that's why. And then once you identify it, work through it. Yeah. You know, and it's, there's a conversation happening now about mental health. And I think it's wonderful that that finally seems to be coming to the forefront of the creative conversation. Um, Because I do think there is a, a huge uh, experience of depression and anxiety and again, self-deprecating tendencies amongst creatives. And it is something that is, was not previously widely discussed, but I think it's becoming more and more, um, talkable. It's not a word, uh, but okay to speak on. It's not so like quote unquote taboo. Um, and I think when that conversation really takes root in our industry, I think we'll see a lot of change as well. Because all of a sudden people won't be afraid to be like, oh, I struggle with depression. Or, oh, I struggle with anxiety. Or, you know, I have body dysmorphia, like X, Y, Z, any of these things. And, mm-hmm. and I think once those conversations become more commonplace, maybe the relationship and the negativity will shift with social media. What else do you, is there anything else that you do um, in terms of, I don't know, guarding yourself against um, external noise? And I don't mean just sort of social media then, I mean, even in like in the industry and and just sort of, you know, everyone is a personality, everyone, you know, there are big ones, there are small ones. So like, I guess, what's your, what's your way of operating as a cellist who, who lives in LA Mm. and and works you know how 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 do you engage with work i would say and of course i mean i'm not an expert and i'm still definitely learning every minute of every day but i try to be as genuinely authentic me as possible um so like if something doesn't feel right i won't do it or like I just try to be as true to myself as possible. Um, do you have ways of cultivating that? Do you have like any practices or? 
Uh, I swim a lot. I don't know if that's even relevant, but when I feel really like muddled in my head about a decision, I'll go swim. Um, something about being in water or underwater really helps me. Um, but in terms of like work situations, it's having, this is going to sound silly, but having the courage to say no and to firmly stand behind that choice. You don't have to say yes to every gig. It's okay to say no. If something doesn't speak to you or, you know, any number of circumstances, if something's making you anxious for a reason, you can say no to the gig and it's okay. Yeah. Um, It's a slippery slope because there are also things that I really think people should generally, well, for me anyways, I can't speak for people, but if something makes me afraid, usually that's a sign that I have to do it. <laughs> like right, if I'm right, right, if right. I'm nervous and I'm like, oh my gosh, if my first question is, I don't know if I'm capable, then I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. But if it's, you know, it's necessary. But if the first question is, I'm anxious because this doesn't feel right or there's just something off about this. How do you know the difference? How can, do you, it's sometimes- There's a difference. There is a difference, but like the fear thrill of like, oh, am I capable? It's yes. like this excited dread, but when something <laughs> yeah. feels really wrong, it's like that nauseating dread. It's very subtle, but there is a difference. Yeah, I'm gonna watch out for that the next time that happens. Yeah. I, I, I've been in this very bizarre, privileged position of, um, and I've even boasted about it, but in the last couple of years, two to three years, I genuinely haven't done anything I've not wanted to do. How crazy is that to be able to say that? That's awesome. Not one thing. It's a lesson you've already learned is what it sounds like, which is awesome. Maybe already learned, but need to maintain, I think. Um, Yeah, that's, I mean, kind of goes back to the whole needing to be accountable for your choices. You have to make the decision to stand up for yourself. Um, But I, I would argue always do so gracefully. Like you don't need to be a dick about things. Oh, sure. And, you know, I like what you said earlier, just because it relates to very much uh, one of my previous podcast episodes, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah. That kind of thing that I've, I've, I've personally been trying to cultivate that for a few years. And like you, exactly what you said resonated with me just because, you know, anytime Basically, when I was at the Guildhall, so when I was studying in my first mm. undergrad year, I was 18 years old. That's when I first made that choice. And I still remember what it is, you know, today. What was it? It was in this sort of con- like conducting kind of space where we we would have like lessons in conducting in our first mm. year. And obviously our whole year group would make up a whole orchestra. So a whole, the whole orchestra would be our year group sitting there and we were all new sure. and we were all sort of, it was, it's funny that everyone was so nervous, you know, me being a violinist, sitting in the violinist chair, you know, and everyone's around you. You don't quite know everyone yet. So you've got that, mm-hmm. that sort of fear, like, oh my goodness, it's like being at school again. Like, you know. Oh yeah. So yeah. And um, the conducting man teacher mm-hmm. was like, who just before we even did anything, he was like, who wants to come and conduct the orchestra? And everyone, you could even like, like you could physically see everyone sort of like swallowing <gasps> themselves and like, yeah. And I was like, in my head, it was like a, a movie moment. Um, it was like slow motion, everything had stopped. And in my head, it was like, Sophie, this is your chance. <laughs> like, I don't Hell need my yeah. chance to show my skills, obviously, no. But I mean, like, 
you're scared, this is you. This is your time now to say okay. yes. So I just put it sort of, just put my hand up. I think I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was super scared because I didn't think I'd be so nervous just waving your hands just around it's scary. in front of all these people who are your age. And it's just weird. But yeah, I was like totally shaking, like just, just conducting in four um some sort of Wagner overture to some you know something so very just basic <laughs> and just you know just a basic Wagner you know and sure. um oh you know yeah you know and, and that was the start of me um just trying to get over performance anxiety actually and that was the way I would do it like without music yeah. and away from music anything that scared me or that would throw me into situations of um having to show up Having mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, be there right then and there, I'd, I'd force myself, just no matter what, to put myself in scary situations and then overcome them. You gain confidence from that. You do. And it kind of goes back to um, the question you asked earlier about, you know, when things change and like how you take yourself like seriously and stuff. And I think that's part of it. And part of that fear is because I think at least for me personally, I've always really struggled with people seeing me taking myself seriously. When you choose to take yourself seriously, you're also choosing to make yourself 110% vulnerable in front of the people watching you participate with that activity. And, and I think that's scary for a lot of people. Um, and it, I think that would be the point to make is that one, it's okay to celebrate other people. And two, it's okay to take yourself seriously and to welcome other people into those spaces of vulnerability because it's okay. You know, it's okay if someone resonates with it and it's okay if someone doesn't resonate with it. But I feel like our job as creatives is we're conduits for emotional exploration you know, we play to offer people an environment to explore themselves, Mm. you know, and I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I think that's why music resonates with so many people is it does allow you the space to really explore yourself devoid of words, devoid of language, devoid of outside opinion, you know, and it's, it's an incredible thing. But I think for us to be the truest and most capable conduits possible, we have to be comfortable being in those places in front of other people because ultimately we have to be in those places for ourselves, but also for them. Because you lead by example, right? So if you are showing somebody that I am 100% vulnerable in front of you, so it's okay for you to be vulnerable in front of me too. It's awesome. You know, it's like the truest experience. It's so cool. Mm, that comfort in the freedom yeah. of performing and the self-expression and, and the sort of the learning, if you like, to be in that space, to, to, mm-hmm. to always be in that. Like I can't, I can't really in, in a podcast sort of, do the eye, the kind of like big eyes and sparkly energy eyes that I'm kind of doing now that my 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 last violin teacher would always be trying to get out of me sure. and he'd he'd want me to shout 
in the lessons and I physically could not shout I said no I, I said I can't shout you know he's yeah, like yeah. after three we'll do it together and I would be like no wait <laughs> and after three he'd be, he'd be screaming and I'd just be like I, I'd start and try and I'd just be laughing it had all gone you know all the breath had left me but he was trying to cultivate this and he was an active performer still and still is mm-hmm. He was trying to cultivate this energy in you. Like, you know, this is, yeah. you're, not, you're not just playing for nothing. Like you're doing something. And, and that was a very valuable lesson. And uh, Yeah. Well, he was trying to get you out of your head. And I think that's arguably one of the most important lessons to learn in instrument and in musical training or art of any kind um, is to get yourself out of your head. Yeah. And I, I try and do that kind of thing. Everything he taught me in, in that way of like, performing how to perform is what I do with students when I have students um I try and get them to do the same things and it's really funny to watch the other person squirm because I was there (laughs) yeah definitely well if there is one thing that you would advise or hmm there's one thing that you would leave uh listeners with with sort of the topic of being authentic to yourself as a person, finding yourself. And yeah, what would be one thing that you'd leave listeners with on, on being authentic? I would say trust your own personal sense of bravery. Um, trust your choices and don't be a dick. Okay. Really. <laughs> three, three very simple steps to life there. Yeah, just... One of my teachers at Academy, I would, and I would say probably the best thing I was ever told was confidence, the lexical roots of confidence break down into with trust. Mm. Um, And her point was, you can only be a strong creative if you approach your craft with trust and you trust yourself to be able to do it. And you trust yourself to be able to explore these things you trust your hands to be there for you when you need them to be. So that's what I would say. I would say, trust yourself to be there for you and trust yourself to be there for others in a graceful way. Nice. That's not, that's a little bit more eloquent than saying, don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I appreciate know. that that's you being authentic to you. <laughs> Just, yeah, it's, Extend understanding and patience to other people is hugely important. Here are all my like trigger trigger sound bites. Um, but yeah, I would just say that trust yourself to be there for you. It's become a guiding principle for my life. Is just approach everything with a strong sense of trust in self. Yep, yep, um, yep. Because you are your own greatest advocate. You know. So you have to be able to rely on you to be there for you, you know, to show up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would say. Trust. It's all trust. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, like I said, hearing someone else's insights, it's a, it is an inspiration for me personally. And I hope for anyone that's listening, um, so yeah, I thank you all the way from sunny LA. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much, Sophie. I'll speak to you soon. And I'll speak to everyone else in the next episode.
Thank you.